Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. So I'm really excited today. For Faculty Feed, we have Dr. Frances Harden-Fanning. She is the professor and Shirley B. Powers Endowed Chair of Nursing Research. So welcome to Faculty Feed, Fran. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. You did one of our Educator Grand Rounds quite a little while ago, because we've been trying to get this scheduled for some time. And I thought it was an amazing story, this, this research study that you did with your nursing students. And so the topic of it was trying to help the nursing students build their advocacy skills. So I just wanted to start with some questions around that area and help everybody understand what it is we're talking about. What is being an advocate? What does that really mean? An advocate is really just someone who speaks for other people and typically those people may have either no voice or a diminished voice and whether that be a patient who is sedated but we are aware that is, is in pain or that could be a health issue such as vaccine hesitancy, those types of things. And even to the point of uh, legislation, the American Nurses Association actually posits that advocacy is a pillar of nursing. And since we're consistently the most trusted of professions, we have a great deal of referent power, which comes from being trusted by the public. So it's important that we're able to advocate both for our patients, our own work profession, and our communities. And at, at this point, as a general cohort, the students today, they have a lot of difficulty with discourse. So. Um, as a society, we're actually becoming very uncomfortable with disagreements to the point that the advocacy skills are actually lacking. Yeah, I, I remember you talking about that in the um, presentation that you did. Why don't you just talk about what your research project was about and how you went about doing it? I actually read a book that was recommended by a friend called The Coddling of the American Mind, and the authors are Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. And after I read the book, I reached out to my dean, um, who really encourages common reading experiences among our faculty, and she read the book and agreed that this would be a good book for all of us to read. So I facilitated that reading experience, and a lot of our faculty really felt that the book significantly changed their points of view on how to discuss controversial content with, with and among our students. And it just happened in March of 2021, the College of Business sponsored uh, a discussion by Jonathan Haidt about the book as part of the Center for Free Enterprise Menard Family Lecture Series. And I attended that. And then simultaneously at the same time, I was completing uh, one of the certificate programs, and that include Dr. Micah Camress's uh, Legal Issues in Post-Secondary Education. Part of that course was learning a lot about the Supreme Court decisions relative to free speech on campus. And I thought that the advocacy discussion board activities would be a great way to put both the book's advice and the Supreme Court decisions on free speech into our curriculum. I actually don't know much about those decisions. Could you tell us a little bit about that? If you look at all of the decisions relative to college campuses, 
college campuses, particularly public universities, speech is protected far more than at other institutions because this is an expectation on college campuses that we do have discussions, that we allow students to disagree, and even speech that can be very uncomfortable is uh, is protected by those Supreme Court decisions. I don't have the actual names of the decisions at the tip of my fingers, but there, there are multiple ones and can, has consistently been in favor of more speech on campus versus um, shutting down speech and not allowing certain speakers that type of thing. Following all of that, I, part, I reached out to Dr. Kimberly Hartson who teaches our undergraduate community health course and her faculty, uh, Dr. Nancy Kern and Dr. Lynette Galloway, the four of us partnered to develop a threaded discussion where students have to choose a particular, whether it's geopolitical, uh, social stance, really give a strong argument for their opinions and then they have to rebut another student's opinion and say, well, this is why I think my approach would be more effective, uh, more beneficial, et cetera. Um, so we decided that if we were going to do that, we really wanted to give the students the opportunity to put forth the best arguments possible. So the faculty developed brief videos on how to form a logical argument, avoid fallacies, and then how to use the scientific evidence to form your opinion. And then we gave them three questions. Each student had to present an argument and then rebut a peer's argument. So how did you choose what scenarios you were going to use for this assignment? I chose food security for several reasons. One, that's my area of research, so I had access to a lot of information that I could give to the students. And then also because uh, food security is a real problem on, on college campuses. A lot of our students are food insecure. And even though it's controversial, it's not as controversial as a lot of other public health issues. So I thought, well, let's do something that's not going to upset them too much if they are disagreed with. The Coddling of the American Mind, that, mm -hmm. that book, help me understand how it relates to the research project on sure. food security? Sure. Well, the, the authors, they're really telling us that because of some historical events, and social media is one of them, but it's also the incorrect assumption that we're living in the most dangerous of times, that the current generation of college students has been very protected from everything, and that unfortunately has actually been brought to college campuses with them so it's very difficult for them when they're when someone disagrees with them and this is a general cohort this is not you know everybody's this way but they really struggle um, but the book really gives concrete examples of how that needs to change because otherwise we're not going to be able to have discussions and solve problems because we all, we're all valuable, our opinions are valuable, but we need to be able to substantiate those with a reason of why we form those opinions. You talked in there about microaggressions and mm -hmm. other things that challenge this notion that you can have open discussion right. because you might offend someone. Right. And, and there seems to be such a, a pendulum sh um, you know, shift toward protection so no one is offended by anything. The, the issue that you're raising is right. then how in that context do you talk about things that might be offensive to somebody? Right. And if you can't do it on a college campus where your mind is supposed to be sorting all this stuff out, when and where could you talk about it? That's why the book really introduces the Chicago Statement 
which is this was developed at the University of Chicago back in 2015. And it's literally a free speech policy for campuses, and there's over 80 institutions who have now adopted that. I do want to read an excerpt from that. It says, because the university is committed to free and open inquiry in all matters, it guarantees all members of the university community the broadest possible latitude to speak, write, listen, challenge, and learn. It is not the proper role of a university to attempt to shield individuals from ideals and opinion they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive. And that's directly from that because they really encourage that this is the place where we should be having debate and discourse is on a college campus. In relation to the food security mm -hmm. um, research, would somebody be upset to talk about or hear about food insecurity? Is that the implication here? No, no. One, okay, and, and let me explain what we did. We, we did three rounds and I gave them the information and then they were to find additional information to support their choice. The first one, we were gentle, and we said the, that the, um, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, there's four different areas in which we can attack food insecurity, and that was food waste, climate change, the elimination of all conflict globally, and then the other is economic justice. So they had to choose one of those and defend why they would choose that over the other three. Then one of their peers would say, well, instead of reducing food waste, I think we should eliminate all conflict. And they would give the reasons and how they would do that. We wanted them to not just say, well, the government should fix this. It had to be more specific. So that was kind of an easy one. Of course, most of them did choose food waste because that tends to be more proximal. We feel like we can, I mean, how do I stop wars on the African right. continent. You know, I can stop wasting food though. So a lot of them did choose food waste. Well then in the second one, we dichotomize their options. Do we either promote fish consumption as a means of ending global insecurity, or do we not because of the unknown consequences of microplastics in the ocean? Fortunately, about 96% of them said we should promote fish, but it was very interesting, the ones who said no, how they came back and rebutted those few. So it, it wasn't that it was something that would make them very uncomfortable. They had to be able to understand another's perspective and then rebut that. So you provided them a space within which they could take these potentially controversial things mm -hmm. and, and do a little bit of work and, and sort some things out, surface it, and have an open discussion on both mm -hmm. sides of these issues. We started the, the, this session talking about advocacy. Mm -hmm. How do you relate what you just described right. to advocacy and the importance of the nurse as an advocate for patients, community health, wherever they're working? Right, so that was the third question. The uh, World Health Organization actually issued statements about their sustainable development goals that has, has the potential for negative impact on small farmers in Africa. So the sub-Saharan countries, several of them actually came together, they presented a letter to the World Health Organization. Significant problems are going to happen if the World Health Organization takes over the responsibility of food security in Africa. 
So the students had to had to come up with a, a resolution. Do, would you advise these farmers to take a wait and see approach because a lot of donations are coming into this, or would you, as a public health nurse, go to the World Health Organization and say, look, you need to consider this. You need to help us find that happy medium, that compromise that can be made. Um, so the third question, and when we first started it, we didn't have a third question. I said, well, let's wait and see how the first two go, and then we'll see, you know. So that, and that final one, we really forced them to be an advocate and to understand that their decision would cost lives, that people would die if they said, well, let's do a wait and see approach. And, and yet we still had students who said, we should just wait and see because that's a lot of money. That's a lot of people who are trying to help. Um, so the, the rebuttals were quite interesting on that one. What type of rebuttals did you did you observe with your students? Fortunately, a lot of it was um, ethnocentrism, that they felt that you're looking at this from the perspective of someone who is privileged, who has always had access to food, so now you're telling people who are barely staying alive that they should just wait and see. So they really had a, a good grasp of put yourself in the other person's shoes and think about what you're saying type of thing. Do you feel that the students would, or maybe you've had previous assignments where you've you know, seen their thought process, do you feel like the way that you walked them through the project helped them get to that point? Or what kind of growth did you see with the students? 88% of 110 undergrads said that the activity contributed very much to them being able to form valid arguments. 91% said it helped them to learn credible sources for their positions. And then 90% felt it allowed them to see themselves as a health advocate. So, And that was our point, was we wanted them to understand that they are in a position. It's not just the nurse in the hospital. They can be public health nurses, community health nurses, legislators. <laughs> Uh, and really become advocates for whole populations. We're going to, um, actually we're doing it right now, we have a, a master's group of students who are going through the activity right now. So we really want to be able to compare the difference in the response type from undergraduate to graduate. But from the first question to the third, you could see growth and really those logical arguments becoming much more sound. Did you by any chance have any of those not logical arguments or, mm -hmm. you know, the Facebook style yelling type thing happening in the discussion board? We did. And I would just go in and say, okay, remember that the point of this is to bring this other person to your side. That's the whole point of being an advocate. So how would you phrase this differently? But we did have, we had a few of those, not as many as I thought there would be more because of social media, but right. they, they, did, they did really well. I was very pleased. We were very happy with the results. Because when I think of this project, I think of you know these these learners, these students that are coming in. They're used to being this anonymous person on the internet, and they can expound you know whatever they want to, right? And so, and I can be right. Nobody's going to challenge. But you're taking that and say, okay, let's look at evidence. Let's look at the science. Then make a decision and see how you can advocate for your community, your patient, whomever. 
Yeah, I will say we also saw the opposite in the first question. We would have people say, that is a wonderful idea. I agree with that, and I think that's what we should do. The reason I said this other thing was this. So I would go in and say, that is not the assignment. The assignment is to rebut what this person said. We understand you think, you know, that you're friends and, and you do agree with them, but the assignment for this is to give a different viewpoint and be able to rationalize that and provide support for it. So how do you think this assignment parallels experiences that these learners would have in clinical settings? In clinical settings, um, a lot of our students, because they will come out BSN prepared, they will be in positions where they'll be developing the algorithms within the hospital, the clinical pathways, um, and they'll be on evidence-based counsels, and they will be in situations where they will have to advocate for other nurses, other personnel in the hospital. I work with the Norton Evidence-Based Councils at the hospitals here, and we're actually kind of in one of those right now. I can't go into a lot of detail, but it's, it's really powerful to watch people who care about the nursing profession and the clinical environment be able to sit down and have discussions with people who disagree with them completely, but yet come up with that mutual objective that's very feasible and very evidence-based. So it's easy to see how advocacy is a core competency for nurses. I mean, that, that's just, that's largely who they are. They are advocating for the disadvantaged, the child, the person that's sedated. Uh, you can just see how that works, even at the community level. I'm going to ask you to think more broadly about the implications of this work that you've done. And are there not other student groups across this university for whom advocacy ought to be important to them as well? And, and so can you comment on the lessons sort of learned from this, albeit in the face of nursing students, and what that means for us across the university and how we are teaching them to not be or not be advocates and to be able to deal with people who disagree with them because that's the real world they're going to enter into right. not everyone's going to agree with them and right. respect Absolutely. you know their spaces mm -hmm. so can you talk to that sure and I'll say that two, two of the things we're doing right now is I'm teaching a, a Cardinal Core course, Global Health. So I incorporated this into that using children exposed to war and building resilience in those children. And then the surprisingly low mortality rates uh, in African countries during the pandemic. And the third one is the rights of individuals who are living in slums. So we're working on that now. And then I also developed a rural health Cardinal Core, and those are open to anyone on campus. And I will be doing the same thing in that specific to rural health issues. But I think that campus-wide, it, it's, it's not that difficult to find health issues or, you know, if you look at some of the other disciplines, you know, we were just talking about the environment and the impact of um, the cardiovascular system. So you have engineers who can help develop things that are going to make it safer for people. They're going to make things that are less likely to induce uh, cardiovascular risk. So being able to find specific issues related to those foundational beliefs and potential opportunities, that could be applied to, I mean, to any discipline on campus. Just right off the top of my head, uh, social work students, mm -hmm. by definition, they're advocates, right? Yeah. Law students, yeah. they're going to be at least advocate for their client or advocate mm -hmm. for how the system works. 
I'm just trying to think of an example of any kind of area of study where being an advocate is not part of it. Do you ever address with your learners when there's um, maybe power imbalances between who they are advocating to? So maybe it's a a learner advocating to a faculty member or, um, uh, you know, interprofessional teams where there's perceived hierarchy. Have you ever dealt with that? Not in this project, but we do in, in nursing courses because there is a perceived power hierarchy in our clinical settings. So that's something that's a part of nursing education uh, at, at pretty much every nursing school because we've dealt with it for a long, long time. Um, but I think it would be great to be able to incorporate that into something like this and give scenarios where you have to approach someone who um, may have more power than you and how would you manage that. But again, those skills, that's why those skills are important instead of being you know, confrontational to that person you can really advocate for, for a point using sound evidence, staying calm, being very polite, and saying, but this, this could be the outcome if we do X, Y, and Z. You were just talking about how you're kind of running this again with some uh, master's students in nursing. But what's next? What's going on next with this project? Well, right now, we're doing two things. Um, those of us who are we're with the undergraduate students. Um, we're taking those results. We're going to try to publish those in the nursing education uh, today. And then we also decided, because they made specific recommendations in their rebuttal posts about how those things could be improved, we're using a socio-ecological model to see at what level. Are they addressing the individual level, the community level, a policy level, to see if there's going to be a difference between undergraduate and of course the graduate students. The graduate students won't finish this until I think the first week of July. So we're doing all of this kind of when we're still looking at this other cohort of students. But we, and we're gonna try to publish that as well. I've presented this at the American Association of Colleges of Nursing already. Um, so we'll see where it goes. Uh, have you looked at adding other types of scenarios or putting them into just the different scenarios into different courses? Because I do know the NCLEX is changing and they're looking at more critical thinking skills and this project is a critical thinking yes. skill. I would love to do that. The, the most significant barrier I have is that I don't teach in the undergraduate program. So I've essentially said, okay, if you'll add this to your course, I'll do all the grading. Yeah. And I can only do so much of that as a graduate right. faculty. So, but I, you know, I think the conversations going forward, uh, I would like this to be something that we can give to other people yeah. at other institutions. Here's our article in this nursing education journal. This is how we set this up. This is how you can use this. And then, you know, have those conversations about how can we add this? How can we make this a more threaded discussion? I mean, have them come back and defend again their position when someone does a rebuttal. So this was just the first, the first time we did this. So we wanted to kind of tread cautiously, just in case. So if you're thinking about other, other faculty that would have an assignment like this or other institutions that would integrate an assignment like this, what advice would you give to faculty who are assessing students? Like what is a good rebuttal? What are the what are the characteristics of an effective argument? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and that's the, the community health 
course coordinator, she said, I want the rubric to be very generous on this so that we could give them feedback. And that's what they did. If they, we gave them very broad points, you know, you have to, your APA must be formatted correctly. You have to have at least one other um, source of evidence that's credible. So we were very generous, but then we would go in and talk to them. And then if there were themes that we saw emerging, Dr. Hartson in her course would say, okay, let's talk about some of this. So we would visit those opportunities as a group and have, have the, the whole student cohort talk, talk through some of these things. Do, um, how, did the students know how to find literature on their own? Did they come in with those skills or did you find that those were lacking? We, one of the videos was how to use PubMed and how to find scientific evidence because I'd, you know, there's a baseline. I mean, some, even the course I'm teaching now, some students are great and some don't even know what that is. So we try to give them at least a baseline and say, these are the databases that you can use and we give them the tutorials that are either on the National Library of Medicine or some of them are on YouTube and they're really credible. CDC has a YouTube page that has a lot of really um, good videos on those types of things. This is a, an example of using knowledge immediately and when we do that we retain about 90 percent of the information so not only are they learning how to form arguments and be an advocate they're also learning about the content. Yeah and it, it helps them remember that. And we saw that in some of the comments afterward because we would say, how did this affect you as, as a person? And we had probably 20% of the students said, I'm, I'm sad, I thought the world was okay. I thought everybody had food because I've always had food. So it really, it opened their eyes beyond being able to be an advocate. Faculty Feed is a podcast and you know, Podcasts are rather passive learning experience, and so we try to make it a little more active. And so we always ask our guests for a challenge to uh, throw out there to our listeners within the, for them to do in the next week after listening to this episode. So what would you challenge um, folks out there to do within the next seven to 10 days after hearing this? One of the best things is to challenge one of my own viewpoints and to try to prove myself incorrect. And that really, uh, and I do that, I really, I go and I say, okay, let, let me find the sources that will negate this because it really strengthens my own viewpoint most of the time. There have been a couple times that I thought, hmm, okay, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. So I would challenge people to do that, a really strongly held belief and then try to, try to prove yourself wrong. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at facfeed at louisville.edu that's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.